Even if you are not professional, you will all, every day you will think about chess. Uh, so it's a very, uh, very nice game, I think, and it's very good for mental yeah. health. Very good for mental health. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios. As we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessive. Why are we like this? Hi, my name is JJ Lang, and I'm a Blitzaholic. Hi, JJ. It's been about five minutes since my last game of Blitz, and <laughs> that's why I was five minutes late to this meeting. Did you win your game of Blitz? I have lost five in a row, but I am not thinking about it. Thanks for asking. My last game before we got on was actually Bullet, and you know that that's not my cup of tea. How many moves did you make? Twelve? <laughs> I don't quite remember. That's not the embarrassing part. The embarrassing part is that I did get royally forked and I wanted to send it to you, but I figured I would just tell you in person. So as you might have guessed, we're here today to talk not about chess, but about chess's very tempting, yet also perhaps misunderstood relative, speed chess or blitz. Now, even for people who have signed their souls away to chess, they still complain about how much they play Blitz. And it's this weird phenomena, if you take a step back, that somebody doesn't seem to have a problem spending most of their weekends, most of their free time, and probably a lot of the time they're at work thinking about, reading about, practicing chess. But when they spend five hours playing five-minute games instead of other chess forms of study, that, that is the bridge too far for them. So today we're going to try and get to the bottom of why that is. What is it about Blitz that A, makes even the most shameless of the chess obsessed so shameful? And B, why do we all keep going back to Blitz anyways? It's true. We all keep going back. Do you know anyone who plays chess, JJ, and doesn't play any form of Blitz or Bullet? When I was playing in middle and high school and online chess was in a more nascent stage or like the internet chess club ICC was like a paid membership. I knew a lot of people, even like decent players who just didn't play online. But at this point, the only person I knew who didn't play online was this guy in New York, international master James Jay Bonin, who like played three or four tournaments a week around the New York area. And about two months into the pandemic he cracked and made a chess.com account so now i do not know anyone who's a serious chess player who does not play blitz yeah that's an incredible statistic it's amazing and i think you're totally right if you look online if you look at twitter (laughs) everyone's always complaining about blitz Uh, and it doesn't really expand to chess as a whole and you said okay they are relatives i'm curious how close of relatives are they they're certainly not identical twins are they are they cousins I'd say that they're like, they're not even step siblings. I'd say they're half siblings. Like they get, they get a lot of the rules and rigidity from one parent, but then where one is like very mature and slow and thoughtful, the other clearly suffers from some sort of cognitive defects. (laughs) 
I see them almost as they are siblings, but they're siblings with this huge age gap. Mm. So one of them is truly a mistake that came 16 years later. <laughs> Why do you assume the mistake came later rather than earlier? Um, that's just in this particular analogy. You know, mistakes can come in any birth order. <laughs> but yeah, I really see Chess as the younger sibling who has no rules. The parents are too tired to actually monitor their behavior. All of the actual finesse and hardcore parenting really went into child number one. So that's over the board. I mean, they really had truly centuries to develop this incredible mm-hmm. game. And then online chess just kind of popped in out of nowhere, happened overnight, and really does feel like a slightly different subgenre. So why is that? Why is speed chess not just chess in miniature? What would you say? I mean, there's all the obvious answers, right? Mm-hmm. Everything is happening so quickly. So all the things that you're thinking about in a classical game of chess aren't happening. And it kind of goes back to what we even talked about last week, JJ, almost the difference between logic and calculation and feeling. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think Blitz really taps so much more into that feeling. When you're on the clock, you really need to be using your intuition. You're not going to have time to, to calculate anything. And <laughs> that is why I am so embarrassingly bad at playing Blitz. And it's almost not even that my intuition is bad. Mm-hmm. It's just so hard for me to not want to think about the position and to calculate. So it took me a solid two or three months to stop flagging and blitz and to really pressure myself to play quickly, even if it meant I lost. Um, because it's really hard for me to make that switch. Mazel tov. I'm proud of you for joining the dark side. So on a typical, uh, let's say week, in a typical week, about how many hours do you think you spend playing blitz online? A lot less than other people out of necessity. I mean, mm. I'm a grad student. I have a very full life, as you know. And so I kind of have the arm reduction approach with blitz, which is, I try to not start early. If I play the second I sit down at my computer, mm. it's really hard for me to get anything done. So I've almost set it up with, I can play chess in the evening where I can only fit in so much, but I really need to be taking care of my life and all my responsibilities during my normal work hours. That's so interesting. I've never articulated that to myself that if I play yeah. Blitz in the morning, especially if it goes well or poorly, that day... Game over. Exactly. That day is probably three to five hours of blitz minimum. And if I don't really play until the end of the day and I'm not feeling it, I'll go weeks at a time without playing. Totally. I'm I'm with you. And we can kind of talk about this aspect of blitz, which does make it feel so different from chess. Like there is something so compulsive about it. And in general, you and I have kind of talked about a difference between you and I that you <laughs> potentially have a more addictive personality than oh, I do. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I don't actually have a very addictive personality, which I think surprises a lot of people because I am very intense. I'm very passionate about the things I love. And I really do have strong hyper interests. So I can sit and read a book for four hours straight, be so totally involved in that, that I am not responding to the world around me. My partner can say my name and I literally don't respond. <laughs> um, same with chess. Mm. It doesn't feel addictive in the sense that on any given day, if I want to make sure I don't play, I don't feel a strong compulsion to play that is out of my control. <laughs> or if I need to stop, I feel like I'm able to put my phone down. And I'm curious. Um, oh, we'll get there. Yeah. I think it would be really fun, JJ, once we do get there. Maybe we can even actually go through the criteria and we can see where you fall on uh, how addictive chess feels for you. You were saying this earlier, talking about 
how it really does feel like you are playing a different game. So before we get into this idea of the addictiveness of Blitz, let's get in a little bit about why, not only why Blitz is different than just a slow over the board game, but why does everyone just dunk on Blitz all the time and make fun of themselves and each other for playing Blitz? Blitz for sure makes my game worse. And I mean, I'm sure you know this much better than I do. And you can even think about how you advise your students to use mm-hmm. or not use Blitz. Mm-hmm. So there's the obvious ones of we're not calculating. We're picking up bad habits. We're blundering pieces left and right. And I've heard you kind of talk about how in your own chess development, you are hoping to sort of develop this almost very intuitive, automatic checklist mm-hmm. where as you're playing, you are attempting to mentally go through that checklist and look for, am I hanging pieces? What is my opponent's best piece? What is my best piece? Where are the weaknesses? But you're trying to internalize it. I don't know. I'm not going to devil advocate my favorite my favorite toy just yet. But you're, you're exactly getting at what everyone hates about Blitz. The way I explain it is, you'll probably hate this because I'm about to personify the brain as a separate entity than the person. But I love mind-body duality. <laughs> Um, your brain is watching all of these games you play and it's trying desperately to find some sort of patterns or something to cling out to out of what it sees. So if you're only playing fast games, blundering all the time, everything Julia said, your brain's going to pick up a lot of stuff. If you're like me, you might make the same errors in the opening over and over because at a certain point you remember making these moves before, but don't really remember if they're the games where you got burned or not. And it's very hard to learn from it and you end up internalizing these things. You're not internalizing the time you spent analyzing a game. You're not internalizing watching people much better than you play or like reading annotations of games. So your brain is trying to form patterns and habits for chess with a very, very impoverished set of stimulus, stimuli, stimulus checks. And that's, I think that's one reason why everyone's mad about Blitz is if you spend all this time playing Blitz, then you have people who are like, I've played all this Blitz. How come I haven't improved? That's my favorite like Quora question. I've played 10,000 games of Blitz. Why am I still only 1,200? Have you seen this Reddit post where once or twice a year, it comes back and everyone is totally outraged? It's some account on LeeChess that has played something like 15,000 games and literally has not improved their rating in eight years or something absurd. And they're just still this 1,500. I think it's like 150,000 games. Yeah. Okay. Set as somebody close to 15,000 games. <laughs> I think that sounds right. Yeah. And then there's always this debate on, are, are we so absolutely repulsed or do we kind of respect this person? <laughs> like, clearly. The answer is clearly both. Clearly both. Absolutely. And and that does tie into something that will be a recurring theme in the podcast, which is you don't have to want to improve at chess. If you've really enjoyed playing those 150,000 games of Blitz, then that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that until you start complaining about how you don't know why you're not getting better, until you start operating under the delusion, until you start you know paying money to a coach and then instead of doing your homework, only playing Blitz and things like that. Where and start wondering like what that's actually not a dig at Julia for the record, um, <laughs> it is a dig at some of my students. <laughs> and, and then you can hear arguments that maybe in moderated doses there are benefits to playing blitz. For instance, if you're learning a new Absolutely. opening, I'd rather practice 
playing games and get experience than just try and memorize everything without putting any of it into practice. So Blitz is a great way. Exactly. Blitz is a great way to kind of get a feel for the sorts of positions much faster. If you're getting into time trouble in your slow games and getting to the positions where you have to rely on intuition, being able to have to blitz out end games is really good training. If you're having trouble picking or sticking with your intuition and second guessing yourself, Blitz is really great. You can always analyze your Blitz games and get a feel for where your biggest leaks are. What are the mistakes that you are making over and over? Is it relieving or creating tension in the pawns that's always doing? Is it a particular piece that you're always hanging or a square where multiple pieces are taken? There's a lot of good things you can get out of Blitz. And so sometimes perhaps it does get a bad rep. Because I don't think it's a universally bad training tool or part of training, especially if you come into it intentionally knowing what you want to get out of it. I totally agree. The danger, though, is that it's really hard to stop playing Blitz, which kind of gets to our next point. (laughs) And before we do that, Judy, I just totally agree. And I feel like that was something that you even helped push me in when we started playing together a lot. And I also started building a new opening repertoire. I feel like I really lean towards the side of I love to study chess and I can actually do that for hours and hours. And I was building this really awesome wee chess study. And I eventually I had to just jump into the water because like mm-hmm. you said, you can study those variations from top to bottom as long as you want. And then when your opponent goes out of book on move six, you really need to know more about the principles and the feel of the position. And what are the general ideas that mm-hmm. go along with this type of position? So I actually really push myself to play more blitz. For science, for studying. Yeah. <laughs> It was really helpful. And there is something to be said for that. And we can think about, I mean, truly almost all phenomenon in the natural world kind of existing with that optimal dose curve, right? Mm. Is there an amount of blitz that will help your game? And once you cross that threshold, (laughs) now you're actually not learning optimally, but also without a little bit of blitz, you're not able to kind of get that rapid collection of information that helps you learn a position. I'm sympathetic to that. As an extremely suboptimal individual in all aspects of my life, I am going to push back against the idea that you can that it's about optimal. And I'm going to say it has a lot more to do with how intentional you are in the blitz you're playing. So, you know, Julia, if you're talking about trying out openings and making sense of it, flipping through those games and seeing, I'm not sure. Probably there's probably an amount that's too much, but like that might have to do with like basic survival functions. And what a key thing you've just said, which is. How are you using the blitz? So after you play a game, when you know you maybe didn't play the position as well as you could have, are you pausing to actually analyze your game and look at it and think about what could I play differently? What does the end end say? Is the better move here? How could I improve my position? Or are you clicking new opponent immediately, which I'm sure is what we are all doing 99 percent of the time exactly when I'm being a good boy, I will review my blitz uh-huh. games either one after. Right immediately, or I will like download a batch or like I'll pick all the recent ones from an opening. And a a really fun exercise to do is to go back to them a few weeks later and view them almost as if you're looking at a stranger's game that looks vaguely familiar and not your own game and really try and just evaluate the position. I love that, JJ. I've actually never really thought about the difference between those two techniques. Mm -hmm. I've always kind of actually beat myself up for the times that I maybe waited longer than I would have liked to, to look at a game. And then when I finally did come back to it, if I did come back to it (laughs) on a good day, I thought, oh, I don't even remember what I was thinking here. Right. I love the way you framed that. And maybe a combination of those two things is actually Mm -hmm. really helpful. 
to sometimes do it right after when it's fresh and really get that perspective. But also there is an advantage to coming back later. I've never thought about that before. That's really nice. Because one thing to say is I think if you're trying to improve your blitz, you definitely want to know what you were thinking when you played so you can fix it. But if you're just Mm -hmm. trying to improve your chess, being able to look at chess positions that look like the positions you get out of your openings and really reflect on them is great. And that's something that I get a lot with my students is they'll make errors in fast games and try and justify or explain away or like be a little maybe it's not the right word, but be a little defensive about making the mistake. I'm like, I don't care that you made a mistake. No one's going to play a perfect game in a 3-2 or something. But I want to know now, untimed, what's your sense of this position? Because this looks like yes. a position you get all the time from the opening. I don't care what you were thinking. Love that. What do you think now? I love that. Maybe, maybe a, I like the way that you framed this question. How are you using Blitz? So maybe the question here is, are you using Blitz? Or is Blitz using you? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I love it. And it also really ties in so nicely to what we were going to, you know, really explore more about this compulsive nature of Blitz because all substances that have a high addictive potential, you could think about in the same way. Are you bringing a lot of intentionality into your use of the substance? And are you in the driver's seat or is the substance using you? So that really is almost how we even define whether or not any kind of entity prof or substance can be addictive. Who is in control? Well, let's find out. <laughs> what? Let's. So what kind of questions would you ask or do psychologists ask to make sense of whether the substance is in the driver's seat, as you put it? Yeah, definitely. This is something that I pretty much have spent my entire PhD career thinking about. I actually even designed a taught a course at Michigan, a seminar for undergraduates that literally asks this question, which is, how do we determine if something is addicting? How do we begin to define and measure that? So there's 11 criteria according to the most recent edition of the DSM. Mm -hmm. So if you want, JJ, we can even go through those and we can see which of these criteria you do or do not meet in the context of chess. How does that sound? Oh, hell yeah. And I'll give a little bit of context before we go into each of the individual criteria. The number one thing that we're thinking about is control of use. So are you able to control your use or not? We can talk about all the other criteria. We'll go through them in order. Withdrawal, tolerance, impairment, distress. You actually don't see all of these criteria the same in different types of addiction. For example, yeah, the big one that was really controversial for a long time before the DSM-5 was this idea, um, can something be addictive if it's not intoxicating, if you don't become intoxicated, high, or have an altered state? Is it technology, maybe? Great example. Absolutely. The big one that kind of forced that change was the tobacco industry. We were seeing that cigarettes were highly, highly addictive. Um, The tobacco industry really wanted to fight that research and claim that they were not addictive. And one of the main things they pointed to was, you're not getting drunk and you're not getting high the way we see with other substances of abuse. And because of that, because nicotine is so addicting, but is not intoxicating, they actually changed the criteria and those definitions. But it's a good example of how it looks different for different types of addictions. All right, I'm I'm going for 11 for 11. So let's get to it. All right, let's get to it. So let's start with the first one. Do you feel, JJ, like you have a good sense of control of when, how often, or for how long you're playing Blitz? No. If I were to quantify it, I would say about a 3 out of 10. Okay, a 3 out of 10. 
When are those times where you feel like that is not within your control? When I've started, when I've set unrealistically small windows, such as just one game, when I'm procrastinating, and when I've been winning a lot. Okay. So it sounds like that is something that is definitely happening for you. Hell yeah. I'm on a roll. I'm one for one. So let's keep going. Okay. The other big one that we think about is craving. So do you experience cravings or urges or a strong compulsion to play Blitz? Yeah. When I'm in the throes of the addiction, when I'm in a Blitz bender, and for for research purposes, I've been in one for the past, oh no, seven days. Wow. I really thought it was two. But it's in seven days. Yes, absolutely. I think about my breaks between teaching in terms of how many six-minute chunks for 3-0 games I could fit in there. But when I'm not playing, I, I can't think of anything I want to do less than play Blitz when I'm not so in that's the so cycle. fascinating. Yeah. What do you kind of mean by that? As in, when you think about it, you feel averse to that? Yes. So then what gets you started playing? Usually it's a little boredom or maybe I'm more caffeinated than usual or I'm trying to use Blitz in one of those ways I do genuinely believe is productive. So this one started because I had spent several weeks working a lot on learning some new openings without playing a whole lot. And I wanted to get more experience in testing them out. And so what started as getting a good feel turned into, hey, my rating went up 100 points in a sitting while working on this stuff to I've just spent three to five hours a day trying to keep adding on to that. And then it went up a second hundred points and a third hundred points. And now that it's starting to plummet, I really want to just keep doing that. But at first I had no desire to play Blitz. I had no desire to be where I am right now. I just thought it would be a really useful way to get some games in. It even started when I couldn't get good slow games at the time I wanted to play them in the morning. No one was responding to seeks for like 30 minute games and I didn't have anything scheduled. So it almost came from a place of uh, necessity, knowing what would happen. Totally. Which kind of, as a side note, seems to be a complaint I'm seeing a lot that getting Mm -hmm. longer time games is really hard, which I think does also speak to the fact that this is this phenomenon on its own. You can Mm -hmm. find a million people online at chess.com at any given time who want to play a 5-5. But if you want to play a 30-minute game, you're literally sitting there for 20 minutes and it can't even find a single person within your reading range that wants to play. So uh, I think that speaks volumes in and of itself. But We are a society in decline. And I think with things that feel compulsive, that can also be a really common experience that when you're not engaging with the behavior or the substance, you might not actually have cravings. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's only once you are exposed to it that those cravings kind of shoot through the roof. And Absolutely. we see that even in animal models. These are really interesting studies where they'll get an animal addicted to a substance. For example, you can get rats addicted to something like cocaine. And you can also put them through a detoxification process. That. What's really fascinating is that you can get them addicted. So they'll press the lever really mm-hmm. compulsively. They want the cocaine. Mm-hmm. And you can actually put them through a process where you get them off of the cocaine and they're not exhibiting that addictive pattern of behavior anymore. Right. If you intravenously expose them to cocaine, so they do not even mm. know that they've taken it, there's no cue. They mm-hmm. don't see it. They, they're not pressing the lever and having it delivered the normal way that mm-hmm. they're used to. They will start pressing the lever again. And what that really highlights is that exposure to the substance, even without the cue, can reignite those cravings and that addictive pattern of behavior. It's really fascinating. Amazing. 
Yeah. So I, I feel like you're experiencing that. So we can check cravings off the list pretty safely, I think. Thank you. The next two are the ones that we think about a lot with addiction, which are tolerance and withdraw. So we can kind of think of those mm-hmm. one by one. And with withdraw, when you stop using the substance or engaging in the behavior, do you experience any withdrawal symptoms, JJ? Um, stop using for what length of time? Yeah, good question. In the context of blitz, I don't know. And we might even want to think first about what would those withdrawal symptoms even look like if there are any? Yeah. So with other things, we're going to see withdrawal symptoms are physical. So especially with things like alcohol, opioids, there's sometimes a really intense physiological withdrawal process. But what would that look like for something like Blitz where it's definitely not going to be physiological? I just start pre-moving on other websites, you know? (laughs) Dude, just start swiping on Tinder. That could really not be good for your marriage. I would never. No, you really want it. <laughs> no, I have no desire. But I suppose what I think of in terms of effects are effects on chess, which don't interest me that much. Like I can tell when I'm on the blitz bender, I don't want to look at a chessboard or do anything chess related if it's not blitz. Whereas if totally. I feel like I'm doing a couple blitz games a day, that doesn't impact my ability to spend other time on other facets of chess. So that's oh, one difference. And the other difference is... When I'm trying to get myself to stop playing, I find myself fixating a lot on games I've played or having to expend a lot of mental energy, not using that next break or window of time to play. I think in terms of what would be a withdrawal symptom, it might be something more like irritability, even anxiety. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Now we're talking. Do you feel anxious? Does your mood change? Do you experience all any of kind of things. negative aspects? All of those things. I think when people talk about something like tilt, they'll primarily talk about getting mad for a second and then poor play. But when I think of tilt, right. I think of something that can ruin my day. And that's usually something that gets me off the blitz bender is realizing I've been upset all day because I played some games, they went poorly and they went so poorly, I decided I had to stop but didn't want to stop. And now... I'm grumpy and irritable and having a hard time formulating sentences. And then I realize, wow, I actually have a problem. So yeah, there you go. That's the one. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't really thought about it in that context, but you've definitely shared with me the times where Amelia's expressed her dislike of (laughs) your level of engagement with chess Mm -hmm. purely because of how it affects your mood. Yeah. And some of that is like while playing, it's not really fun to sit next to somebody who's just muttering at their phone swearing. But I think when she realizes, oh, you stopped playing an hour ago and you're not so much thinking about the game, you're just like a zombie because you had a bad time playing Blitz. I almost can't set shift out of that. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mindset into the real world where your life is delightful. Totally. (laughs) And then with tolerance, do you need to spend more time playing Blitz in order to satisfy that urge? So maybe when you first started playing, you would play a couple of games and it was fun and you would carry on. Yes. But now if you don't play for an hour or two, you don't really scratch that itch. Yes. With the only exception being exceptionally good or bad sessions. And this is also something that I think makes it good for addiction is that it starts being an interest of actually enjoying the process. And by the end, it's like chasing results more than anything else. So when I say good or bad session, I don't even mean enjoyable games. Like I remember a week ago telling Amelia that I played a couple hours of Blitz for the first time in a few weeks and found myself really enjoying the chess. And 
six days later, that is not how I'm feeling, but I've been playing yeah. larger amounts, but I can probably, you know, if I gain a lot of points in an hour, that might scratch an itch because the itch is so much more results driven. Totally. And we can also think about why that makes Blitz so uniquely addictive in a way that over the board or classical chess is not. Yes. Is the rapid speed at which you get that feedback, at which you get those mm-hmm. results and that dopamine surge when you see that plus seven and it feels really good. Yeah. That's happening on such a different time scale than when you're sitting over the board. Even if you would say your FIDE rating is more important to you than your lead chess blitz rating, the right. brain is actually maybe not responding in a way that is aligned with that viewpoint. My brain likes seeing numbers go up. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yes, of course it does. Of course it does. But when we think about what drives the compulsion to keep doing something, is it the pleasure that we get when we see those numbers go up and we get that dopamine hit? Mm-hmm. Or is it the aversion that we have when we see the numbers go down and the desire to see them go back to where they were. So this you're, it sounds like you're getting to what you identified as a major difference between the two of us. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. So something JJ and I have talked about in the past is that individuals who have a predisposition or a vulnerability to developing an addiction tend to be really reward sensitive. That's my area of research is really understanding how reward dysfunction underlies various addictive behaviors, specifically Mm. in the context of disordered eating. But in general, with all types of compulsive behavior or addiction, we really see this reward sensitivity is a really common underlying factor that makes someone more vulnerable to developing an addiction. So JJ has identified himself as someone who's very reward sensitive, who really sees those cues and wants the reward and wants it now. And on the flip side, I probably could replay from memory satisfying wins from a blitz session and then could probably not tell you with any degree of accuracy, like margin of five games, how many games I lost in that session. That is fascinating. That's so fascinating, JJ, because I actually feel the exact opposite. Mm Mm-hmm which is really aligned with a difference that we've talked about before, which is I'm actually not as reward sensitive, but I'm very punishment sensitive. Mm. It's just a different kind of phenotype. Mm-hmm. Um, so that actually makes sense. But I would remember the one game where I got royally forks. That position <laughs> is steered into my memory. Uh-huh. But all the games where I played really well or had a great checkmate felt good in the moment, but doesn't feel as sticky for me. So that actually lines up really well. And one reason why I make sure to try and actually go over my blitz games is if the result is good, that will go back and color the rest of the game. And the number of times I'll be like, oh, that game was sick and not realize that was the same game that I was already starting to block from my memory earlier. I didn't even realize (laughs) that was this. And I think there's, I mean, for blitz, I think it's a match made in heaven because more than slow chess accidents happen to everyone in Blitz, like you're going to make moves that you would never make if you had time on the clock. So getting fixated on that one terrible thing makes less sense than it would say for slow chess, where like if you're a solid tournament player, you probably should never, you probably should not be letting your queen get taken for free one game per tournament. But if you're playing 200 games of Blitz, it's probably going to happen to you, even if you're like an above 2000 player. So that lack of sensitivity to punishment, I think, is actually good for Blitz, but then mix that with the high reward sensitivity. And yeah, (laughs) you're in trouble. Now you're in a bender and you can't get out. 
I can definitely think of sessions where I maybe played 10 games and lost nine of them and would have guessed either that it was like a four game session, not a 10 game session, or would have guessed that it was like a five and five session because it did not, because the feeling of that hit, especially if it was against a higher rated player, did not feel like the one out of 10. That's wild to me. Mm -hmm. I don't even think I have blitz sessions like that. I think I'm so sensitive to punishment (laughs) that (laughs) if I lose a couple in a row, I I essentially say to myself, okay, I need to take a break. (laughs) This doesn't feel good. And I'll actually stop playing because I prefer pleasure over pain. That's weird. One question (laughs) is, is. are these two like the preference of, you know, reward versus punishment sensitivity? Are they sort of in an inverse relationship or are there people who are sensitive to both or neither? That's such a great question. And they are not a one-to-one in an inverse relationship. You certainly can be sensitive to both. Cool. I think most people actually those would tend to be more directly correlated rather than inversely correlated. Mm-hmm. And you certainly can be insensitive to both as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that is really what makes some people more prone to addictive behavior is having that really high reward sensitivity and maybe even a relatively low punishment sensitivity. So right. that when there are... <laughs> When there are cues in their environment that are saying there is some level of distress or impairment being caused by your behavior, that is not as salient as how good the reward feels when you are engaging in the behavior. This tracks. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a really important point to make because not everybody is particularly vulnerable to developing an addiction. So in their life, most people actually do use addictive substances to some extent. People have a drink of alcohol. People do experience experiment with drugs, but most people do not become addictive or experience problematic use because there really is this underlying component of individual variability. And so not everyone who's exposed to the behavior or the substance is going to find themselves in this pattern of addictive use. And Hmm. I think that's probably true with chess. But for some reason, JJ, at least in our community, it seems like everyone feels addicted. I don't know. It does. But is it self-selective? I was going to ask whether it's the people who feel the need to constantly be in dialogue with other chess players and sharing results and stuff are the kinds of people who are going to have those sorts of types. But you showed up and you don't fit into that. (laughs) I know, but I... Okay, so I I don't feel necessarily particularly addicted to Blitz, but that's why Mm -hmm. I was so interested in something that you brought up earlier is that most people are not experiencing this type of compulsive engagement Mm-hmm. with slower chess or studying or doing their mm-hmm. chess homework. But I totally struggle with that. So <laughs> when these when these issues come up in my relationship, it's truly because I've been staring at one game for an hour. So when JJ and I first started playing chess together, JJ's a little bit better than me at chess, as most of our listeners probably know. This might not be true by the time this is released. <laughs> oh my God, I wish. Don't tease me like that. Um, so when we would play blitz jj would rock my world in a way that you can't imagine jj would beat me literally 10 times in a row it's not even close i mean you would rock me <laughs> <laughs> jj is so much better than me at chess but when we would play correspondence i can hold my own a little bit better yes. and it, i think it might have taken jj a while to realize that i would spend an hour thinking about one move And I would really just stare at the chessboard and think very deeply about every possible variation in the position (laughs) because I had to, because JJ could rock my world. And I was too scared to play any move. Like anything I did, I was, I, I, I truly, I still experience this 
It's a one example. <laughs> I'm playing JJ and my friend David <laughs> right now. And David is a little bit worse than JJ. So I just don't have any fear. I'll play all these moves against David. And then after the game, I'll look at the analysis and they were all good moves. But when I play you, I don't have almost that freedom mm-hmm. because I'm scared of you. So in the context of this like sensitivity to punishment makes a lot of sense. Yes. Oh my God, that's so true. So that, yeah. So this is, I mean, that's really eye-opening. And I suspect a lot of people perhaps who also have not felt almost wondered if something was wrong with them due to their lack of interest in playing a ton of blitz or their lack of need to manage it. I wonder if any of them hearing this are going to be like, yes, this is what keeps me up at night is having my chessable queue fill up the next day because I got so many things wrong. That's my worst nightmare. That's why, that is why I study. That is why I work hard. And which is hilarious to me because mine is my queue of things I need to review is in the thousands. My accuracies are low because, you know, I'm just <laughs> cramming them in there. It'll help with the blitz. You're just having a good time. I love it. I've never thought of that, JJ. That is so, so true. But I, yeah, I can analyze a game. I can study a game. I can watch a YouTube video and, and become really, really immersed. <laughs> and so <laughs> my partner and I have had some truly difficult conversations where he has essentially expressed to me, I feel like all of your free time, which is very, very limited, and a lot of your attention is going towards studying chess rather than spending quality time with me. And that's really hard to hear from the person that I, you know, love the most, that he doesn't feel prioritized. Yeah, that is hard to hear. And it's also been really hard for me to not want to spend that time studying chess. I imagine it's also hard if given how busy you are, you also feel like you haven't had as much time as you'd want for the chess. And then also feeling that not only do I not have enough time for me, but it's taking its toll anyways. No one wins. Totally. So validating JJ. That is exactly how I feel. And I think a conversation that my partner and I have had many times over was one where if we're both kind of absentmindedly on our phones, watching TV, drifting in and out of conversation or something, in my head, if she was doing something on her phone and I was playing chess on my phone, those were the same things. And it took a long time for me to understand that the way I was sucked in and very irritable Mm -hmm. or unable to, even if I was trying to be like, oh, I don't care. I don't care. It's just online rating. I don't care. It's just a blitz game. I could not come in and out. Or if she would start talking to me, I would like not here or just like jolt jolt into attention or like drop my phone out of shock because I was so tuned in and be like, oh, okay. She can be semi-present or drift in and out of presence and attention when doing various things, as can I, but not with chess. And I think on the flip side totally. has been my partner realizing as well that, oh, when JJ is actually like studying stuff, when he's working on a problem, when he's putting homework together, when he's reading something, he actually does drift in and out easily and I can talk to him. And I, I can even see at this point that like she can tell whether or not I'm like working on a chess thing or whether the clock is running and like that will determine <laughs> whether she bothers. So, so it's taken a long time to even understand that like, oh, when I'm playing Blitz, I am not present even if I want to be. And it's taken her a long time to realize, oh, when JJ is doing a lot of chess things that aren't Blitz, He's more present than maybe I thought it was because it was so frustrating trying to get him to show up when he was playing a blitz game. Totally, totally. And I think that really does speak to the way that you interact with blitz. 
Mm-hmm. It's not the way that you would interact with any other activity that you're doing on your phone. And we already think of those things being relatively addictive. We think yes. about social media as having an addictive quality. And then to see Blitz pull you in at even another level, I think really does speak volumes. It's horrible. So based on what you just said, it just fits in so perfectly. If we're talking about criteria, one of the criteria for an addiction is that it causes social or interpersonal problems related to your use. So you definitely checked that one off. The biggest problem I have is that it's made me friends with a lot more chess players. So we at least understand each other. And this is sort of a joke, but it's also like, you know, I don't know, in a sense of, you know, if I go out in the pre-COVID times to a bar with other chess players, you can get away with playing chess on your phone (laughs) in a way that you can't if you go out with normies. And like, is that the only reason I'm friends with these people? No. But do I think of... What will happen if I go out and spend time with a chess crowd versus a non-chess crowd in terms of those things? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if I'm in the throes of an episode. And you've even joked, JJ, about why would I talk to someone who doesn't play chess? What would we talk about? The specific joke was why would I talk to a man who doesn't play chess? But yes. (laughs) Yeah. Do you feel like that has been a significant change since you started getting back into chess? I know it's been a while Mm -hmm. now, Mm -hmm. but do you feel like your friendships, not just your romantic relationship with Amelia, but do you feel like your other relationships have suffered at all? I think that I would have felt that more acutely if there was more in-person stuff, because I probably would not want to spend time as much as people would back in the day when we spent time with friends. But now that most of my friendships are distance and most of them are very like occasional check-ins, no, it it hasn't, but I can totally see how it could have. So can we count it? Do I get (laughs) that point? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. you already got that point, I think, okay, because cool. of the stress it causes okay, in your in your marriage. So we can go through the other ones relatively quickly. Yes. The next one is hazardous use. So this is really obvious when we're thinking about substances. Mm-hmm. Do you use alcohol or cigarettes in a way that impacts your health? Mm-hmm. But with chess, I think we can see some examples too. So have you ever been involved in playing a game of Blitz when you were driving and you couldn't take your eyes off your phone? Have you ever forgotten to, I don't know, take some kind of medications or do something productive for your health because you were playing Blitz for too long? Can you think of any examples? Yes, I can think of examples that toe the line and I can think of desires I've had to suppress to do the things you're saying and I've had to work really hard to suppress them. I've never played a game of Blitz while driving. I've sat in the car finishing and starting another and finishing a game of Blitz before turning it on and driving. Um Probably the closest I get is trying to blitz while I walk the dogs or something where, you know, that itself maybe isn't reckless. But if there are things happening outside of my phone, I should be sensitive to as I walk the creatures. I will be less sensitive to them. Sure. But those are good examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next one, JJ, have you ever neglected any of your major roles? And I think that this... (laughs) really highlights how you've actually tailored your life to fit your love of chess. (laughs) But have you ever failed to meet any responsibilities at work, school, uh, your family life? Hmm. Have you ever had any major problems because you were spending too much time playing chess? (laughs) I suspect Amelia might say yes, but I would... (laughs) I think I would say no. I would say that like an annoying thing about me is that I'm pretty good at running up right against the limit. Yeah. Like I'm pretty good at spending every waking second of the day that doesn't have to be spent doing the things I have to get done in order to work, in order to do the things I said I would do, blah, 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 playing blitz to the point where a lot of things I wanted to do from 
other hobbies to checking in on friends to just resting and taking time to myself don't get done. And so it takes a toll on me, but I'm so good at never letting it seep over into the things that would have much more immediate or severe consequences that it never feels like I have to really check myself. And it's almost like if I was a bit more reckless, I think I would be a bit more diligent about trying to get help or create more routines, right? So this we see in all types of presentations of addiction all the time. We can think about someone that we might describe as a high-functioning individual with alcohol addiction, right? Mm -hmm. So this is someone who does exactly what you're describing, Mm -hmm. knows exactly where that line is and might not actually experience the real impairment, which is this catch-22 because those are the exact things that could drive them to change their relationship with the substance or with the behavior. But things are not crumbling around them. It's it's just not bad enough to make any change. Like if I can, I can imagine that like if I was playing Blitz on my phone while driving all the time and I got into a car crash, I might actually yeah. uninstall the app from my phone. I hope that never happens. And it, hopefully it would take a lot less to do that. But I could totally see really not just feeling like I have to, but actually wanting to. Not just wanting to want to, but wanting to. Yeah, what a great way to phrase that. And sometimes you'll hear clinicians call it the gift of desperation. Mm. And I think with chess, it really is That's how I play chess too. (laughs) See, I don't have that. (laughs) You got to teach me that. But um, yeah, I think just because of the nature of of what Blitz is, it is not so impairing. You're probably not Mm going to see your life crumble around you. So it's okay to not meet that one. Um, The next one, JJ, have you stopped engaging in activities that you used to enjoy in order to play more chess? I don't really like anything else that much. (laughs) What about before you started playing chess? Because you you took a big break and you kind of came back after a long hiatus. Yeah, absolutely. But in that break, I did play a lot of bullet on my phone. I put no effort into improving or anything. I never put effort, like like 3-0 would be slow chess for me. But no, that was definitely one of the major things I would do when I was bored or killing time. It was just that. I mean, I, I improved precisely zero in like a seven year hiatus of doing that. But no, I, I even then I did that. And I remember people making comments about like, what are your hobbies besides playing chess on your phone? Yeah, I actually see you as someone who does have a lot of interest. I do. I love cooking. Yeah. Um, I watch. I mean, I'm into a lot of like TV and music and media and stuff. But like yeah. none of that has ever really felt impaired. But I think that's also because those are the things where... I do them simply because I like doing them. And if I had a goal, you know, of doing something for several hours a day, but it was just like a purely personal growth goal, that would probably be the first thing to go to a blitz addiction. But I don't have goals of how much I cook. I cook when I have to. (laughs) And if I set a plan to cook something involved because I'm very stubborn, I will cook the involved thing. And if it takes two hours to do it, then I will make sure I set aside two hours of non-blitz time to do it. That's no problem. Which I think actually really does demonstrate the the way that you've built at least somewhat of a healthy relationship with Blitz. And I think that people who are struggling with a severe addiction mm-hmm. are not able to carve out any of that time. So things that they used to enjoy, even like cooking mm. a meal, it goes to the wayside if it is actually encroaching on the time that they would spend with the substance or with the behavior. So what you're saying is that I have the good kind of addiction. <laughs> I'm saying that maybe you don't have a severe and tearing addiction. So it's it's better. So it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is an important point to make, though, is that we think about these things very categorically, like you're mm. either addicted or not. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely a spectrum. And the current way that we assess addiction, I think, gets closer to that. 
we now have mild, moderate, and severe substance use categories, which we did not have in DSM-4. Oh, cool. But I think that is still relatively categorical, right? Which we need for diagnoses, I guess. But these things absolutely exist somewhere on a gradient spectrum. So Mm -hmm. if you're sort of feeling like, I'm not sure if I really feel addicted or not, if I meet these criteria, probably don't meet all of them. And it probably does fall somewhere within that range. It's really Mm -hmm. not black or white. So JJ, it sounds like you don't necessarily meet the criteria for activities given up for use or for behavior. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've saved the best for last. Okay. So I did practicum training at the University of Michigan Hospital Addiction Treatment Center. Mm-hmm. This was sort of the one criteria that I think we most prioritize in terms okay. of whether someone really was having a substance use problem. I'm ready. And that is asking yourselves, have you had repeated failed attempts to limit, reduce, control, or eliminate your use? Hold on. I was working on a puzzle. <laughs> JJ Lang. Fuck. What was the question? <laughs> yeah, there it is. Oh, oh, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean... I'm going to say yes. I I usually, one problem is I will usually set an intention of I'm just not going to do this for a while. So that makes it kind of hard to measure. But I can certainly think of times where I was going to limit myself to nine blitz games a day and annotate all of them as I've seen people give us one sort of advice on one sort of intervention on Twitter, which we'll get into in a second. And I think I announced I was going to do that every day for a month and I lasted maybe four days. So yes, there's certainly instances like that. Yeah. So that's kind of the number one thing that we're looking at. Cool. Are you able to control your use? And how do we measure that during times when you've made that actual attempt to cut Mm -hmm. down or to cut back? Were you successful? And if the answer is repeatedly no, then there actually might be some element of compulsive behavior there. And I think that you've definitely experienced that. Cool. So it Man, so it took over an hour to get to the thing I said at the beginning, which is I'm addicted to blitz. <laughs> yes, and actually meeting nine out of 11 criteria. You might even have a severe addiction to blitz. Okay, so. okay, I like to hear it. So, okay, <laughs> now, as somebody who has studied these things, I have to ask, am I fucked? Or is there a way that I can actually overcome some of this and live the semblance of a normal life? <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. To which part? (laughs) (laughs) You know that I am going to take the stance of there's hope for you, sweet, sweet JJ. Okay. But I think that the first thing we want to think about is how motivated are you to cut down on the amount of blitz Mm -hmm. you're playing? Mm -hmm. How much do you really want to stop? I believe I'm motivated. I don't think I want to cut it out forever, especially when I feel like it does benefit my play and study a lot more than other forms of playing chess do. And I think it's important to have a study routine that involves playing. But I definitely, even in the span of this past week, feel with every passing day, less enjoyment coming from the games themselves. And I feel more and more time being spent. And yeah, that's impacting my quality of life. I'm intending to stop after Mm -hmm. this recording. (laughs) <laughs> because I, I really did want to do this experiment of really making sure I was in the right mental state to have this conversation. Um, oh, sure. Well, well, it started It started when I realized it was coming on and I was like, should I stop playing Blitz? And I was like, no, actually, what if I just lean in this week so we can talk about it? So there is, there's a level of maybe that's a post hoc justification. But yes, yes, I definitely feel like I have more time in the day to do more things I like with more focus when I'm not. Yes, I do. I am motivated. I would like I would like to do better. Absolutely. 
And one of the first things that I would always ask my patients when I was working with clients that specifically were struggling with substance use problems early on is, you know, if you could wake up tomorrow and magically this problem went away, Mm -hmm. what would your ideal relationship with this substance or with this behavior look like? So Mm -hmm. if I waved the magic wand, JJ, and you woke Mm -hmm. up tomorrow and you had perfect control over Mm -hmm. what your blitz schedule looked like, Mm -hmm. how would you like to be using blitz in an ideal world? Yeah, I would like it to be a treat that comes after I've done some set amount of work on my chest that was not playing. And I would like it to also be something where every game was studied and worked on and used as part of the regimen. And then occasionally, maybe a night where I'm alone and my partner's out of town or something, have a one night uh, kind of bender that is very self-contained and does not have any effect over it, where I really do just stay up till 4am playing a bunch of games, tilting points, tweeting about it, getting mad, and don't wake up and see if I can, you know, ride the high when I fell asleep or undo some of the damage I did last night and then have it wreck the week. I think that's kind of the ideal relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think that sounds great. It's like somebody who can like get hammered very occasionally but otherwise like drinks very intentionally stuff they actually enjoy and and find that it actually is soothing and takes an edge off. Sure. And I, I think that there are some people who are actually able to engage even in something that they find compulsive or addicting mm-hmm. in these very structured kind of moderated timeframes mm-hmm. and then are able to abstain or reduce their use or their behavior outside of those windows. <laughs> and some people absolutely are not. I think that there are some people who might say, if I play Blitz at all, I'm not going to be able to wake up the next morning and and not open the app on my phone. And so part of it is kind of knowing yourself. <laughs> like, mm. what are your limitations? If I play a little bit or if I play within this time frame, will I be able to wake up the next day and go back to the type of chess that I want to focus on? Will I be able to play a classical game or analyze my games from yesterday? Or if I mm. open the chess app and I've been playing Blitz, I'm going to hit 3-0. Yeah, yeah. And and that kind of speaks to what I was going to say to you when you're saying, you know, am I fucked? Mm-hmm. The people want to know. <laughs> so much of this is really having that level of insight of where you kind of fall and also how you're currently using it. If you're on autopilot and you're constantly hitting new game, new game, new game, mm-hmm. afterwards, you might be able to self-reflect and say, man, I wasted six hours last weekend mm-hmm. when I wish I had been spending my time in this way, mm-hmm. or I'm not engaging with my life in the way that I want to, or I'm not even improving my chest the way I want to because mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. my behavior around blitz. Right. But are you aware in the moment <laughs> when you are hitting new <laughs> no. game, is there any level of intention? And so one thing that I think can be really helpful is just increasing that insight almost in vivo during those moments. <laughs> so in order to get you closer, JJ, to using what's the way you want to do it, the first thing I might recommend is let's track how you're using it now. How many hours are you playing Blitz currently? Mm-hmm. And how does your behavior look different than the way you would like it to look? How big of a gap is there? So we kind of know where to start. Okay. I can actually track this and we can do a check-in. I love that idea. And the great thing about this is you have all the data because it is an electronic game that you're playing. It's all there. You can literally go back and look and see how many hours or how many games you played each day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's something about being accountable to that that makes me excited in a way that feeling this more nebulous, I should be doing something different kind of just makes me want to like hide in a game of Blitz and not think about it. Totally. 
Totally. That's another aspect of things that feel compulsive Mm. (laughs) is that we really have this tendency to use them in a way to cope with what we describe as negative affect. So (laughs) negative mood states, negative thoughts and feelings. When you're feeling anxious or if you're feeling kind of depressed, are you more likely to turn to blitz as a form of escapism? And what's and it's just, and then there's the vicious cycle when the anxiety and depression can themselves be symptoms of an addictive relationship to blitz. Of course. Yes, that is the cycle. Absolutely. And one thing that's very funny here is like you'll see these kinds of very tongue in cheek, but also just like beating a dead horse memes of like brain. I'll just play one game of chess and then I lose. I'll just play one more to win and then I win. I'm playing well. I'll play another. But what's kind of interesting about this is because there isn't a social stigma about blitz the way there is heroin. There's people willfully talking or having these conversations about this behavior that they'll totally own up to and stuff without naming it as addiction. Or maybe they'll joke about it being addiction, but have it totally divorced from any discussion of quote unquote real addiction. And this conversation has been great because sometimes I was wondering when people talk about their addiction to Blitz, are they kind of appropriating the language of addiction? And I think you've convinced me that, you know, it's not appropriative the way that maybe just saying I'm addicted to chess is unless you're actually like Julia, who is straight up sitting there studying all the time and you have to pull the computer (laughs) away from her. But most of us, it sounds like, are not addicted to chess. We love chess, but it's the blitz thing that is doing something that really does track addiction and not just like an ordinary use of the word that is a bastardization of a serious concept. I totally agree. And and I think that we can even look at what makes blitz so uniquely addictive in a way that chess as a whole, classical over the board is not. So mm-hmm. when we think about what makes anything addictive, we're really looking at how dysfunction starts to occur in the reward system. I specifically study the mesolympic dopaminergic reward system. And we can see that what happens is we have the rewarding stimulus uh-huh. and we have a cue for that stimulus. So let's uh-huh. use an example that everyone can understand. We can use alcohol. So someone might walk you to a bar and mm. see all of the bottles behind the bar. That's the cue. Mm-hmm. Then if they order a drink and they drink the alcohol, they're going to get that reward response. There is a dopaminergic response to the actual mm. substance. When an addiction starts to develop, essentially, the response to the cue gets stronger and stronger. There's a learning that occurs. So you're going to see the cue for the substance. And you're already going to get that dopamine surge. And that's going to move you towards the substance. That's really powerful. That's essentially how our reward system operates so that Mm -hmm. we can go towards the things that drive pleasure or survival. So you can think about something like food. You'll see a similar kind of operation. What happens over time with an addiction is that the actual dopamine response to the substance itself goes down. Mm. We are not as responsive. And that's what we think of as tolerance. (laughs) The problem is that the dopamine response to the cue goes way, way up. So we see the cue and our brains want it bad. We're Mm -hmm. like, yes, that is the only thing I can think about in this moment. And when we actually do the behavior or use the substance, we're not getting the same amount of reward that we used to. But our behavior is not being driven by the reward itself. It's by the cue. The cue can be a lot of things. So this ties into... 
the last thing I wanted to talk about, and this is giving me the perfect way to try and express this question I have. So for pretty much any addictive substance under capitalism, there's going to be people who are trying to profit off of its addictiveness. And this is perfectly explains the insidiousness of the advertising industry and product placement and various other things of where it's not so much, oh, we need to make every baby smoke a cigarette to be addicted. Although there is some of those, you know, like candy, (laughs) candy cigarettes, but it's as much as it's also just like, let's put these cues everywhere. So even the people who haven't smoked in a while, or maybe even haven't smoked, might be able to start picking up on things or being attracted to these things. So in chess, yes, is it just that there are obviously for-profit companies in chess? There are obviously lots of people, including me as a chess teacher, who benefit off of people playing more chess. Is there insidious use of these cues of figuring out ways to like get these cues everywhere in front of everyone to get more people playing blitz in order to profit. Right. So to answer that, we can back up a little bit. What makes blitz so uniquely addictive? What makes any substance addictive is when that cue is tied very close temporally to the dopamine response. Oh, I know where you're going with this. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. The closer that connection is, meaning the more quickly we respond in those dopamine reward systems of our brain after the cue, the higher mm-hmm. the addictive potential. So for example, a lot of people might know that cocaine in the form of crack cocaine mm-hmm. is a lot more addictive than cocaine in its less processed form. Mm-hmm. So we can think about, okay, what is the difference between crack cocaine and cocaine? Essentially, when you make crack cocaine, you combine cocaine with baking soda and you heat it up into a form in which when you use the cocaine, it traverses the blood-brain barrier a lot quicker than cocaine in its less processed form. That might seem like a small difference, but that makes it incredibly more addictive because essentially what happens is that dopamine response is occurring even more quickly. But just to kind of process that, then when you think about blitz and chess, you are tying the reward response so much tighter temporally with the cue. When Mm -hmm. you're playing one-minute games of bullet, those things are happening lightning speed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When you sit over a one-hour over-the-board game in a tournament, eventually you're going to either get the reward or perhaps the punishment if you lose. But it's happening so slowly, Mm -hmm. it's not going to have a really high potential for addiction. And then to even piggyback off that more, back in the day when, before my time, when ratings were done by, not by computers, your tournament is played, it's sent to the US Chess Federation, they rate it, then you wait till the next month's bulletin or something, and you might not even see your rating for two months after an event. And then for over the board chess today, you might see your rating in a couple of days, but then in an online game, the second it's done. Totally. So to go back to your to your follow-up question about, you know, how can companies kind of co-opt this system to make mm-hmm. people play more chess or to feel even more addicted to chess is maybe the insidious view, right? Yes. Um, I think that there are definitely already some things I've noticed happening. So the things that I can think of, for example, they've started building in those trophies that you can earn Mm. when you win a certain number of games or there are these leagues that they sort of automatically put you in. I started seeing those fairly recently. Okay, now you're number six in the bronze league, whatever it might be. I'm number one in the bronze right now. Are you? Well, in like my division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I don't know what that means, but I'm proud of it. (laughs) Exactly. All of those things are techniques that these companies use to make you feel hooked. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I think that they've started doing some of those and they're quite effective. These leagues, these trophies and arenas, the way they show you the points mm. has definitely evolved in a way that probably feels more addictive to people than even when these faster time controls first started appearing online. You know, uh, Absolutely. But there's still a lot more they could be doing. And I imagine they actually might start doing. So I will not be surprised if we start seeing different types of graphics and different types of techniques that really are primed to engage those dopamine systems of our brain and make playing feel more compulsive. <laughs> As I oh. told you, JJ, I almost <laughs> don't want to give more detail. No, you shouldn't give. Don't don't give this away for free. Yeah, I don't think anyone at chess.com is going to listen to this, but um, there certainly is a lot more that they could be doing. And I imagine in the future they will be doing. I, and you I can agree. look at, yeah, you can look at other games or different types of technology and how those have been shaped mm-hmm. to promote compulsive use. And just to give one more example is, and this is a feature that I've seen on various chess websites, but I think some of the for-profit ones are a bit more forward in giving them to you right away, is uh, just be telling you, you know, how many inaccuracies, mistakes, blunders, or whatever the terminology is. Um, because I think, yes, being told, even though most of them just don't make much sense. Being told that you made a brilliant move is like a dopamine hit over and above the win. You got it. That's what I was going to say. So even more than the inaccuracies or the mistakes or the blunders, you can see, and this is something chess.com does that WeChess does not do, the which is they tell you this is a brilliant move or this is the best move. Mm-hmm. And they changed it recently. I think a lot of people have noticed that that now a brilliant move or what's the one, JJ, that's like right under brilliant where it's one exclamation point? Just great move, maybe? Yeah, this is a new thing. So they started giving this <laughs> slightly less brilliant, but great move with one exclamation point to a lot of moves. And mm. I think people on Twitter have started noticing, oh man, they give brilliant move or great move way more frequently than they used to. But I'm not complaining. I've heard people kind of make that joke. Oh, but I like it. Yeah, Beautiful. of course you do. And chess.com knows that. They've yeah. really created a system that is more dopamine responsive, I think, than something like WeChess, where mm-hmm. WeChess, you can turn on the engine and you can see the arrows and you can see what they recommend as the best move is. Mm-hmm. But they're not actually providing that cue, those big exclamation points that feel so good for our brain. That's so fascinating. Yeah. One of those things is way more addictive for us visually than the other one. And I suppose I've seen like in some facets, like I can't even remember exactly how to get to it. That sometimes if I analyze a game in Lee Chess or like to turn on the computer, you can get like the double question mark or the double exclam or something to show up. But even the fact that it's giving you the double question mark and the double exclamation instead of only the good ones, which yep. is kind of historically how chess notation has been, annotation has been used is there. But one thing I've always appreciated is how even to see that, and I'm sure there's there are there, there are ways in chess.com to change the settings, but in lead chess, you usually have to go into the analysis window. You have yep. to click the button. Yep. You have to decide you want this, whereas chess.com is going to like harass you with everything that you did, either right or wrong. And sometimes maybe if you're a very solid player, you see these astrologically high numbers of mistakes and you feel terrible. But sometimes if you're new to chess or something and it says, you know, this was a 70 move game and you only had five mistakes, two inaccuracies, and a blunder. That's really exciting. That's 63 moves that are good. And like that, that, that is a hit that you didn't even ask for. Totally. And wow. so I think all of this is to say to anyone who's listening, if you feel that compulsion 
to use blitz chess in that way that you don't feel with classical, if you feel there is this addictive quality to the way you engage with blitz, that is not just in your head. There's a lot of real aspects to the way they built that game that contribute to that feeling. And some of those are intentional. I think some of those are just inherent to the faster time controls, but that's a real effect. And something something that is that makes it hard, right, is that it's not like, you know, these are cigarette manufacturers who are producing candy cigarettes purely to get people addicted to a harmful substance. It's like, it's like getting people into chess and more passionate about chess are more likely to play more or subscribe to get the lessons and more tactics and stuff and get more serious about chess is not necessarily a bad thing. And you could argue that like all of that, some of the hooks are trying to get you hooked on chess itself rather than blitz. And that doesn't have the same straight up evil undertones that it would for the cigarette manufacturers, <laughs> but it's just also hard to believe or, or like, but maybe it, but at a certain point, it's like, I don't really think that they're really trying to um, paternalistically get you a taste of blitz. So you realize the beautiful world of chess. They're just trying to get you on the website and playing and paying. Totally. They're trying yeah. to get your eyes on the website and to either subscribe or to look at the ads that they profit off of. Yeah. There's no secret there. And this isn't and this isn't because these individual people are awful. It's because it's a for-profit company. And of course. That's and and the and they found that parts of it are addictive or like watching. And I think the rise of streamer culture, it's just more fun to watch games that are going fast. It's more impressive to watch people Great who are playing point. fast. And now you get this thing where a lot of people see the Hikarus and the chess bras playing these one minute, these three minute games. And they totally. want to do that too in a way that even maybe five years ago, they would have thought, well, I don't play three minutes because I just hang all my pieces. But they want that feeling that they're seeing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there is really something about that. What a great point, JJ, too, how much the advent of streaming, which I think has really taken off, even especially during this pandemic. And yeah, these time controls definitely lend themselves so much better to to being streamed and and holding someone's attention for those periods of time because everything Mm -hmm. is happening so quickly. Plus, it's just cool and exciting to watch. I think I told you, I mean, especially because I'm not great. <laughs> I'm not even good because I am so terrible at Blitz and Bullet. There is something so impressive to me about watching someone do that really, really well in Same. a way that even over the board doesn't quite capture me. Like what Magnus does is beautiful. It's a work of art. We can all agree. Sure. But watching someone play Blitz at that speed is just and there's something about it. Oh, yeah. I would rather watch Magnus play like three minute games of Blitz yeah. against Riendos and like beat 10 people with online ratings of 3000. I'd rather watch six hours of Magnus playing Blitz than the best Magnus game over six hours. And I don't want to want that. I want to be able yeah. to say, no, I ultimately would like to watch the good chess. But I mean, but also I'll, I'll look I'll look over the Magnus game with annotations later. It'd be way more fun to watch him play Blitz and see what he can pull out of his ass. Um, In three minutes is way more satisfying than the way more complex and intricate thing he can pull out in six hours. Absolutely. And and there's something to that too, the way you say, JJ, I I wish I wanted this other thing. And I think we hear people say that with other forms of things that can be addictive. So Mm -hmm. for example, there's people who say, I really want to eat healthy. I want to prepare and cook and eat these amazing homemade meals that I maybe remember from my childhood or that I had in a restaurant. That's what sounds the best to me. But night after night, I'm eating Tostitos and salsa on my couch. So we can think about why do we tend to sort of 
go in that direction. In the case of a classical over the board game and in a like well put together thought thoughtful meal, it requires a longer time interval between the putting yes. the starting to put it together and the dopamine hit. Bingo. And so it's like, why would I spend six hours playing chess when I could get that hit in three minutes? Why would I spend yep, um, two hours putting dinner together when I could get that sweet, sweet Tostitos high in seconds? And the hit also isn't as hard as much as we might want it to be. No. As much as we say we value this other thing, the way our brain responds neurochemically to drinking a Coca-Cola is so different than maybe even eating the best risotto you've ever had in the world. At the end of the day, that dopamine surge is almost not even comparable. So I think in a lot of ways, I have kind of begun to view Blitz as almost the junk food of chess. Mm. And there is a place for junk food in our diet. Sometimes I do just want to watch a movie and eat gummy bears. That's a fact. Absolutely. Intuitive um, eating. Yeah. <laughs> right. But there really is something to be said for coming in with this intentionality of even though this is what feels really good for my brain right now, this is what I really value. This is what will improve my chess game. This is where I really want to spend my time and attention. Mm. And while that does take more effort and it does require that intentionality to engage in a different form of chess, how can we start to do that so that we don't feel like we're eating junk food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner rather than using it in a way that will feel uh, fulfilling and kind of aligned with our values and our goals rather than compulsive. And I really appreciate that you use that word values several times because that's ultimately what it comes down to is sometimes what feels the most good in the moment isn't not just the most satisfying in the long yep. run because it's not sustainable, but it's also just not what we take pride in. You know, like I don't maybe like I'm never going to take pride in my ability to swindle fast games of chess in the same way I will my actual skill as a chess player, as much as I do take pride in my that is wildly untrue. <laughs> but I mean, or it's a perverse kind of pride that yeah. I have in that. Where so it's the sort of thing where if I could just switch my values and say that I care more about my three minute rating than my over the board rating, then maybe I would do that and life would be a lot easier. But as it is, I don't, I can't do that, but I also don't want to do that. I want to, I like that I value this really deep thing. And it just Absolutely. is true that you don't get as many dopamine hits as fast for from doing it. And so there's always going to be some work that goes into it. But when you do it, you're, you're achieving something, some sort of higher pleasure of being aligned with your values. Totally. So you're not going to be as driven by these reward mechanisms of the brain towards that behavior, towards that deep study, that slow chess. But mm -hmm. luckily, we as human beings have these incredible prefrontal cortical regions That's that a should hypothesis. be <laughs> that, you know, in theory can and sometimes should be in the driver's seat. Mm. And if we didn't have those regions, we probably really would eat ice cream for every meal of every day because it's fucking delicious. And play playing Blitz. <laughs> and Blitz is delicious. But can we really tap into those higher level processes to guide our behavior closer towards our values and our goals? Yes. Wow. <laughs> and so if anyone <laughs> wants help doing that and you live in the state of Michigan where I am licensed, feel free to message me. I can give you some information towards my clinic. I would be happy to meet with you on a weekly, hourly basis. <laughs> and if anyone wants to schedule a predetermined set number of Blitz games to be analyzed together <laughs> afterwards, 
And if anybody wants to be accountability buddies on that, you can message <laughs> me. You don't even have to be in the state of Michigan. <laughs> I do think all those things would be really helpful, you know, to maybe even leave our listeners with that sort of tidbit of something that feels helpful. I think that a lot of those things that we talked about really could change the way people approach Blitz or change their relationship with how they use Blitz or with chess as a whole, which is, first of all, to have a really clear idea of what those values and goals are Mm. for you and what you would like your Blitz play to look like to really kind of go in with a plan and then start to keep track. (laughs) How close is your behavior right now to what you would like it to look like? And how can you structure your time and your day and your chess play in such a way that gets you closer to that relationship. So maybe that means when you open your computer first thing in the morning, you do not open chess.com first mm-hmm. and start the blitz bender at 8 a.m. <laughs> that's, that's like the harm reduction approach. And I, I love the idea of an accountability buddy or a coach, someone that can mm-hmm. really help you either build or stick to that structure. Absolutely. And I'm so excited to start tracking this and have a check-in. And then for the follow-up, we're also going to try next week to get Julia addicted to Blitz. (laughs) So tune in then. How do you get me addicted, DJ? I do play a lot of Blitz. You know that I I play Blitz at least five times a week for probably about an hour. By next week, Julia will have played 50 hours of Blitz. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Chess Tales Podcast. That would ruin my life in ways that you can't even begin to understand. I can't wait to talk about it, Julia. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Daji, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. That chess problem. One. Yeah. Yeah. One. One. Yeah.